This is the Mike Lupica Podcast. This podcast is great because your enthusiasms, it's why we've all been reading you for so long. This is a great vehicle for you to actually get to in a long-form way, explore those enthusiasms, sometimes with the perspective of an additional 10 or 20 years. Thanks for doing this today, pal. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having the me. fun of this is, I just talk to guys that I want to talk to. That's what, to me, is such a blast about listening to your show. First of all, the first time I ever saw Bernie on television, I started to talk like him <laughs> as I was watching him. <laughs> Can you imagine a great Michael Jordan saying, hey, you know what? We can't beat the Pistons. Let me go join them. The essence of sports is about competition. In your face questions. How much of a dope is he? Compelling. A billion dollar industry, the biggest we've ever had in sports in this country, often comes down to a flip of the coin. This is the Mike Lupica Podcast. Here's Mike Lupica. Mike Lupica. Hello and thanks for joining us on the Mike Lupica Podcast. Today we are thrilled to be joined by uh, the White House reporter for the Associated Press. He has also become uh, an essential member of the Repertory Theater on Morning Joe. He is my friend Jonathan Lemire. But before we get started with Jonathan to talk about politics and his Red Sox, I want to talk to you about our great sponsor, Kronos. Kronos knows that many organizations maintaining a modern workforce of hourly, full, and part-time workers, for them, it can be a challenge. This is especially true for human resources professionals working hard to attract and retain all the best talent. That's why Kronos puts HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. It's one specially designed to give HR professionals supporting a blended workforce a whole new level of confidence. With it, they have everything they need to tackle nearly any human resources challenge and are empowered to not just find and hire the right people, but to engage, motivate, and reward them every single step of the way. Learn more about Kronos HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support them because Kronos is at heart a people business at Kronos.com slash HR swagger. Kronos workforce innovation that works. One of my favorite guys in the business um, is a former colleague of mine at the New York Daily News. He he now has this uh, cushy, nothing ever happens, nothing to write about, nobody to cover job, uh, covering the White House for the Associated Press. Um, he is uh, he comes out of the same neck of the woods as I do, Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, you see him all the time now. He has become a staple on uh, the roster of, of Morning Joe. And his name is Jonathan Lemire, uh, who is now thinking to himself, five games out of the wild card, 28 games left. Maybe my Red Sox still have a chance. Mike, I am doing the math. Five, <laughs> out, five weeks ago, <laughs> they're going to have to play at a pretty great clip and get some help uh, from the teams above them, Indians, A's, Rays, uh, to stumble a bit. Uh, and they'll also have to somehow... Um, find a new bullpen between now and the end of the season. But yes, this is this has sort of been an underwhelming title defense for my beloved Red Sox, but I'm not giving up hope just yet. Uh, and I, I was reading back on you today, and you're like a lot of Red Sox fans I know. Uh, you had your heart and legs broken by the current manager of the team, Aaron Boone, on an October night in 2003 in the bottom of the 11th of Game 7 after Grady Little lost his mind. 
But then you were there the next year. And Jonathan, let me just tell you, when, when the Red Sox concluded the greatest comeback in the history of American sports, let me tell you this story really quick. One of my best friends works for the Titleist. And he, is, he and his dad are both big Red Sox fans. The morning of Game 7 in 2004, he calls me and he said, listen, I know that you can't tell me what's going to happen tonight, but somebody just called and offered Dad and I two tickets to the game. Game 7, 2004. He said, we were there for Boone's home run. And he said, I cannot put myself through this again. Just tell me what you think. And I said, Jay, here's what I think. And you, you, if you quote me on this tomorrow, I'll kill you. All right. I said, the Yankees have no chance to win this game. They are completely done. They have nobody who can get an out tonight. And before you knew it, Damon had hit the grand slam. And I just breathed a great sigh of relief that I hadn't put a friend of mine through another awful baseball experience. Uh, mine's very, very similar. Uh, you were right. I was in the building for both Game 7 and 2003 uh, when Grady Little left Pedro in too long and Boone won it in the extra innings. <laughs> right. uh, and again, in the building as fans. Uh, in 2004 for Game 7 with my brother both times. Uh, in game in 2003, when that ended, and we had terrible seats way up in the upper deck, and this is the old Yankee Stadium, uh, Mike, as you well remember, had those terrible ramps that you have to circle down to get out of the stadium. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My brother and I wear our Red Sox gear, and just after the home run, just be abuse heaped upon us. <laughs> you know, it took, took two hours, it felt like, to get out of the stadium. Uh, and we barely did with our lives. And then the next year, we thought to ourselves, we, we were there actually for game six for shilling in the bloody socks. We survived that, the A-Rod slap. And in game seven, we barely slept that night. The whole day, we were in a panic. But I will say, right before the first pitch of game seven, my brother turned to me and with like a look in his eyes that I don't think I've ever seen before or since said, John, they are winning tonight. And I said, you're right. And they did. It doesn't mean we weren't terrified throughout, uh, but they won. And it was, you know, I know you're supposed to say that the birth of your children are the highlights of the greatest <laughs> moments of your life, but I don't know, man. They might be playing for second place. Uh, that was that was really a spectacular night. It was more than sports. It was it was 86 years. It was about generations of New England families. Uh, it was the, of those two years taken together. It was, it was a passion play. It was truly biblical more than just baseball. I'm going to ask you uh, an inside baseball question that you as a Red Sox fan will, will will appreciate. What were your emotions when Terry Francona brought Pedro into that Game 7 and put the only life into Yankee Stadium there had been since the Red Sox blew the game open early? I can tell you my emotions. I can't tell you my words because it's like a family <laughs> podcast. Uh, uh, it was a bolt of electricity in the stadium. The crowd had been dead, dead since the grand slam in the second inning, and suddenly they were alive again, and my brother and I were ready to wet our pants. It was like, what are you doing? And I, I know they had a big lead, and you know he gave up a couple runs, and they got out of it, and it was still 8-3, to three, I believe. And like they were still fine, and, and, and Bell, Mark Bellhorn, one of the many unheralded heroes of that run, hit a home run in the, the next inning, and suddenly it was 9-3 to three again, and it was fine. Uh, and the crowd started at that point to head for the exits. But it was like, why are you tempting fate like this? We have suffered enough, Tito. Uh, you didn't need to push this particular button. Uh, Jonathan was at the Daily News, as I was, um, in the shadow of September 11th um, in 2001. Uh, we, our past never uh, intersected. Um, I, I remember uh, on Saturday night, it was game two. Was it game two? I think the no game six of the World Series that year. I, I went to Phoenix for game seven between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. I went down 
with some first responders and, and listened to game six uh, on the radio. That was my column that day. Um, where did you spend most of your time that week? Were you moving around? Were you down at ground zero? I, you know, I was up where, where the, you know, family members were showing up with DNA samples up at the old Lexington Armory. And I mean, I was wandering around the city too. Where, where did you spend most of your time? Yeah, it, it, it is, uh, it's hard even sometimes to think about, but I, I so I was to date myself, I guess, a little bit. Uh, I had graduated from college that spring, was a summer intern at the Daily News uh, in the summer of 2001, was told time and time again that you'll never get hired. This is just a summer internship. Don't think about it, kid. You're going to do your three months and we're going to send you on your way. Uh, at the end of August, they said, well, well, you know, we'll keep a couple of you on. You're still never going to get hired. Um, <laughs> but well, you know, if you, don't, if you don't have any better options, and I didn't, you're welcome to continue as a lowly paid intern. Uh, and that was September 1st. And of course, 10 days later, uh, the attacks happened. That, that was primary day in New York, as you yep. might remember. So yep. I was slated to work an evening shift. Um, so, and I was uptown when the planes were hit. So that day I got us, the subways were out of course, and you couldn't take a cab anywhere. So I just walked, um, and eventually ended up on the Upper East Side for the hospitals. And what I'll always remember is Cornell Weill in particular, you know, being there with some other reporters and, and seeing the rows and rows of empty hospital beds, anticipating the patients would arrive, and, and heartbreakingly, they never yeah. did. Uh, there weren't survivors who were coming up to those hospitals. Uh, I was swung by the morgue later that evening. And then starting on the 12th, I got down to Ground Zero. I spent a lot of time at Ground Zero itself uh, in the days that followed. And then, and like you, spent a lot of time with some of the families who were looking for oh, survivors or looking for answers uh, you know, at the various medical facilities, uh, and I sort of a little role I had carved out for myself was I was, the, you know, the daily news, of course, this is all hands on deck and we all worked around the clock for the weeks and months that followed. Um, and I covered and wrote a lot about some of the firefighter funerals. Um, and, you know, to this day, I will say, uh, you know, hearing, sometimes hearing the bagpipes takes me back to that moment, the fall of 2001 and hearing the bagpipes that are such a part of the ritual of the FDNY funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York or other places. Uh, and I get a you know shiver up, up, up my spine. Um, and then, yes, uh, I eventually was hired at the Daily News in, in the months that followed. Uh, and, but so the, you know, September 11th became a big part of everything we did. And, uh, you know, for a number of years, one of my first real beats at the paper uh, was covering the fire department as it rebuilt itself after the, the attacks and losing not just 343 uh, people who were killed that day, but also waves of retirements, waves of illnesses. It was a department that really had to rebuild itself up uh, from the ground up. Uh, talking to Jonathan Lemire, who is just uh, one of the best people covering politics in the business um, for the Associated Press on MSNBC. I'll tell you one st last story about um, uh, September 11th and, and a story that I, I fell into. Uh, and then we'll move on to what's his name, the guy you cover in the White House. Uh <laughs> Uh, Ernie, of course, he was the general manager of the Giants at that time. And he called me up one day and he told me about this amazing voice message that had been left for them by a Giants fan who told them that the team had saved his life. And, yeah. the, and the story was that um, and I, I'm blanking on the guy's name. I, I could look it up. I'll, I'll find it later. And Ernie told me this story and I was able to find the guy because Ernie had gotten the guy's phone number. The Giants played a Monday night football game to open the Broncos' new stadium in Denver. And he, this guy went to one away game every year, and he had randomly picked um, this game. And, and he worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. 
And, you know, he was, I think the, the Broncos thumped the, the Giants that night, and he was calling to get made fun of. He was going to be put on speaker um, to be made fun of by his friends that he had wasted all this money and all this time and all this effort to go out to Denver and watch his team get its ass kicked. And, of course, he called the Nobody would pick up. I mean, he woke up early. He's, it's two-hour time difference there. And, and he realized then when he turned on the TV that they, they were all gone and there were a million stories like that jonathan what i remember best was going and walking in in union square and and seeing those heartbreaking flyers have you seen and a picture and and a description and they and you know what they were and when you have your picture taken almost always you're smiling you know nobody ever has their picture taken and 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 looks like they, they, they just got scared by a black bear okay and and walking down the streets of New York for these people who you knew were gone and never coming back and and, and it, but they had been put there by faith and hope and love. I will never as as long as I live forget those flyers. Uh, nor nor will I. Uh, they they do stay with you and they they stayed up for weeks and months afterwards after the attacks after really all hope was was lost and and I believe in 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 the in the West Village they're near the old uh, hospital there uh, that there were they'd left them up sort of as a display almost like a museum piece like a relic if you will uh, a shrine uh, that felt that did have some religious overtones um, you know to those people it, it is it is it's almost hard now as we're coming up you know on 20 years uh, since the attacks it's hard to imagine it's, just, it's sort of how all-encompassing it was that how the city and the nation changed so dramatically and, and yes of course there ripple effects to this day, politically, and you know, in terms of national security and so on, the way in America's relationship with the world and our own internal politics, but just in terms of being in New York, uh, those days and weeks with the the palpable sense of loss, frankly, the, the, the still the smell of the jet fuel at Ground Zero that you, yep. could, you could, you know, for months lingered in the air, uh, and then that real fear that anything else was possible, that something else could happen, that another moment could happen. And of course, you know, it's not on wood, that, that threat still does exist. But in, in, those, in those days, it felt, it was felt imminent. Uh, but it also was, you know, such great signs of humanity and, and, and hope and love and people coming together um, to, to, to mourn uh, what lost, but also to still celebrate what, what everyone still had. We're talking to Jonathan Lemire of, of the Associated Press um, and MSNBC, who has, uh, again, if, if you follow his work, you know he is just absolutely one of the best people doing this sort of work in the business. So you, so you leave and you go to the Associated Press and you, you couldn't have any idea at the time when you are hired there that your own personal and professional life would be turned upside down in November of 2016 by the the man who is now the somehow the 45th president of the United States. Yeah, it's it's it is not a twist I saw coming. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I covered when I was at the Daily News. You know, you'd cover Donald Trump sometimes as a sure. celebrity. You know, man in the news. I remember interviewing him a, a couple of times. Uh, you know, for various events. He once, sort of jokingly, tried to set me up on a date uh, with another reporter that he, I was doing a gaggle with, and he was like, "Oh, you two, you two should be together." Uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, and you know, so he, certainly he was someone that I knew and, and had a little bit of a relationship with. Uh, when I came over to the Associated Press, one of the first things I did was cover the mayor's race in New York in 2013, which was the race that Bill De Blasio ended up winning, but we'll all remember it as the race that Anthony Weiner lost 
after his uh, you know latest sort of sexting implosion. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, like, well, that'll be the craziest campaign I ever cover. I was wrong, Mike. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so what happened was that I um I was there in 2015. Uh, and this goes to show you, I was not part of, I was did some, I was doing national politics at that point, but I was not part of our official campaign team at the AP, which was based out of Washington. Uh, but because we didn't, the powers that be at the AP and many other places, didn't take Donald Trump all that seriously. They didn't dispatch one of their veterans up to cover his campaign announcement at Trump Tower in June 2015. So I was there. I was, I was at the tower when the now president came down the, the famous escalator, as he likes to say. Um, and then, you know, I covered him off and on for a little while. But by the end of 2015, early in 2016, I was part of the two-man team, two-person team, I should say, uh, who covered him day in and day out. And I spent 2016 on the road uh, covering him. Um, and I will say you, you could feel something happening. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I would have bet my mortgage on it, but I have witnesses uh, that on the Trump campaign plane in those final weeks, I was one of the very few voices who said, I think this guy can win. Uh, you know, that there was an enthusiasm there. There was an energy that you'd go, you know, you remember these campaign rallies. He would talk yep. about, he, he would talk about him being down. He was down in the polls. He didn't believe the polls. They were, they were rigged. They were fake. And he would talk about these voters, these secret voters out there that who were, who were for him, that the polls weren't picking up. And that was met with a lot of mockery. But I would say night after night in those rallies, whether it was in, Florida or Ohio or Pennsylvania in particular, you talk to people who would say, well, I've never talked to a pollster in my life, or I haven't voted in 30 years, but I'm going to vote for this guy. And there was something there, and he struck a chord with, with some Americans, particularly sort of white Americans um, and you know, white working class Americans, that, 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 was, that was percolating. And I remember vividly, you know, in the final days of the campaign, it was after the Access Hollywood tape, and he survived that somehow. Uh, it was right before he got the assist from James Comey's second letter about Hillary Clinton's investigation, which which sort of really hurt her in the, in the campaign's uh, final moments. But I remember being in with Trump in, in Florida, and my colleague that same day was with Hillary Clinton. She was in Miami, and there was probably about you know 300 or 400 people with her. I was in Tampa with Trump, and there were 15,000. And it and we can as politics in politics it's easy to get swept away by crowd size. They can be misleading. Ask the Romney campaign in 2012, the night before the election when they drew 40,000 people in Pittsburgh. They're like, we're going to win. But that was a one-off thing. And what Trump did in 2016 is he was getting crowds like that night after night after night. And there was some sort of energy enthusiasm there that a lot of, all of us missed in some ways. Uh, But that led to what became the most, sort of one of the most stunning electoral outcomes we've ever seen. Talking to Jonathan Lemire on the Mike Lubica podcast, are we at this point in American history? And again, a year is a lifetime. I mean, I can remember, I think H.W. Bush's approval rating was like 89% during the first Gulf War. And a year later, he was out of business because the economy tanked. So the, so much can happen. But are, are we not missing, but not paying enough attention to all of the signs of the, the great Trump base, which we, we people talk about it like it's as powerful as the ocean, that there's an erosion going on in all different sorts of, of, of ways. And I'm, I'm not dismissing the idea that this guy could win again because it's a lot of it's going to be who runs against him, whatever the polls are saying about how well the Democrats stack up. But, Jonathan, the, for anybody else, there, there are bad clouds, dark clouds everywhere for this guy's presidency. 
you're completely right. This is going to be so many times what has become a truism in the last couple of years is that the rules of politics as we know them have not appeared to apply to Donald Trump. And is the question, is that going to happen again? Because you are completely correct. A lot of the warning signs here, that if you're reading tea leaves about where we are, we're still, you know, year plus out, yep. uh, are very bad for an incumbent. Uh, he is a, though he's still very popular among Republicans, his overall approval rating is down. He's underwater in a number of major categories. There has been some erosion of his, of his base, as you, as you said. First of all, his base is, is never quite as big as I think people think it is. Right. But, you know, it's hovering right. around or low, low 30% or so, but we're seeing even a little bit of sign of slippage there. And I can certainly tell you, according to our reporting, which really worried the president and the people around him, which worried the White House, are these signs these last couple of weeks about the economy slowing down, uh, even more so than some of the, the distractions, you know, the, the frankly racist rhetoric he's taught it out, the, trotted out, the divisive policies, some of the stuff we've seen on immigration, you know, and even, even when the Russia probe, which now has, has, of course, largely wound down, although, of course, Congress is still considering impeachment, uh, even then, that did not pose the existential threat to this White House as a slowed economy does. Doesn't even necessarily have to be a recession but a real downturn because obviously the strong economy is crucial for any president's re-election, but particularly this one who came into office touting himself as America's CEO, that he was going to be the businessman who would take us to new prosperous heights, who has spent two and a half years raving about the quote, greatest economy the American country's ever had. Right, Fact right. Check, not true, but still for most people, it has been good. Not all, but most. And he is someone who in an unprecedented way has wed his fortunes to the stock market. And what we have seen here at the, at the signs of a slowdown, particularly because of his own trade battle with China and the tariffs he has tried to implement, we are seeing that slowdown. And that terrifies this White House. Uh, and we're seeing now in the last couple of weeks a flailing from the president personally, but also from the White House itself, trying to figure out what to do to try to steady the economic ship. Yeah, because you at the end of the day, you can't you can try to gaslight people on a whole bunch of stuff, which he does routinely day by day by day. But it's it's hard to ultimately gaslight people if they don't have as much money as they thought they were going to have. I'll paraphrase an old line from the great golfer Lee Trevino. And they asked him about the pressure of playing for the U.S. Open. He said, no, 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 no. He said pressure is playing for five dollars when you got two in your pocket. And so I'll just tip that on its head and say, if you got $2 in your pocket now and you used to have $5, he can't lie that away. And, and, and the, the, there's, there's very few presidents in the history of this country who ever survived a bad economy. But there's other stuff too, Jonathan. I, I was watching, I, I think on the Today Show today, um, uh, Hispanic voters in, in places like Texas, uh, what he got last time around, what he's forecast to get this time around. Um, I, I, I think people, whoever runs for the Democratic Party is going to be way more vigilant about going to places like Michigan this time where Hillary wasn't at, at the end. And and so I, I just think that that there are leaks in this boat and and I will we'll see over the next several months how it plays out. But a guy who was such a strong force as a candidate last time. He, he's going to have to run against himself. He's not running against Deb, Jeb Bush this time. He's going to be running against himself, Jonathan, as much as he is whoever the Democratic nominee is. 
Right. You're always running against your own record. And he's going to have to, for a president who is, shall we say, not great with the facts sometimes, there are going to be some he can't ignore. And let's not forget, of course, as much as there was this enthusiasm that we were just talking about last time in 2016, he also drew an inside straight here. You know, oh. he, he, he sort of very was very fortunate to... You know, we had the, the, the FBI investigation. We had a, he ran against a candidate with unfavorable unfavorability numbers almost as high as his own. Uh, there was some outside interference from Russia and other places. Uh, you know, and we and he ran against a candidate who, frankly, ran a very poor campaign. Most most feel, uh, and I don't think those mistakes are going to be repeated. As you said, there's no way the Democrats aren't going to go to Wisconsin this time around, in part because they put their convention in Milwaukee <laughs> to sort of ensure that that can't happen. Uh, you know, he he is. He is not necessarily going to face a juggernaut, and their questions can be raised about a lot of the Democratic field, but he is going to have to run against what has happened the last two and a half years. And particularly, returning to the economy for a moment, things really do slow down. And it's not making the, the, the economy, doesn't make the projections, doesn't turn as, as, as he has been promised that it would. Who do you blame? I mean, sure, you can try to blame China, but it was your, this trade war was at, at your impetus. You can... You could try to blame the Federal Reserve. He's done that time and time again. I don't think most Americans really care about Jerome Powell. You know, if, if Americans are seeing in their checkbook or that, that they have less money than they used to, or they're seeing in their bank account, or the small business is starting is struggling to make payments, like that matters. And there's a segment of Republicans, uh, and, and frankly, some independents that he won last time around, who, you know, were, were sort of held their nose and voted for him. They were turned off by the rhetoric divisiveness, some of the policies, frankly, some of the racism, but they were willing to ignore it because they said, this guy's good for the economy. And a strong economy kind of gave them cover to still vote for Donald Trump. If the strong economy is gone, that undermines his best argument for re-election, and you'll see, could very well see a lot of those voters uh, defect the Democrats. Jonathan, um, I, I was having dinner the other night with, with an old editor of mine, and he, he kind of slyly asked me, about the New York Times, and he said, uh, are Biden's gaffes going to be Hillary's emails this time for the New York Times? And you know exactly what I'm saying, because what Trump does is he gets you sometimes to bend over backwards and end up helping him because you think you you, you, you have to do something um, uh, fair and, and balanced. But at the end of the day, do do do. Voters, are they going to give a crap about w w w whether Biden called New Hampshire, Vermont or, 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 or any of the other slips against against the sheer volume of lies and meanness that have come out of this White House day after day after day after day? That's going to be one of the singular questions of the next year and a half is again, whether the rules of politics ever do apply to Donald Trump. To this point, they, they largely haven't. And you touched on two things there. It's interesting. First of all, is how this president is going to be covered. You know, I do think that, that, that a lot of media organizations weren't quite prepared for the, the, the sheer volume of, frankly, falsehoods that emanated from Donald Trump both during the, during the campaign and since his time in office. And it's been a, a struggle for some places to sort of fact-check in real time. You know, it's something that we all are still being mindful of. This is a new environment. He's also, of course, placed the media at the center of the conversation in a way that has never happened before. I mean, no president likes their press, but this one, you know, he's calling the media enemy of the people and the enemy of the state and suggesting time and time again stories that were completely factually correct. 
He says they're not true, knowing that there's a segment of his, of his supporters who will believe him rather than any media outlet. So there's that. And also, I think in terms of, 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 of Joe Biden, you hit upon an interesting point there that how will he be covered? So that's a media question, but also what will voters care about? And that is in some ways more, far more important in that is they, are they, is, are something like that going to dissuade them from voting for Joe Biden, let's say if he's the nominee, uh, rather than Donald Trump? But Trump, you know, is going to be day after day after day is going to hammer away at this stuff. And, and, and I will say, there's some, there's, you know, he's hitting upon, as he sometimes does, he finds a way to hit a nerve that, it's, that there is some truth there. And I know there are Democrats. I've speak to them all the time, both regular voters and operatives, who are a little nervous about the vice president, who are nervous, the former vice president, who are nervous about some of these stumbles, these gaffes, that, you know, concerns that he's lost a half a step or whatever it might be. You know, is he up to the rigors of a campaign that is only going to intensify dramatically uh, between now and next November? Uh, you know, that does have some Democrats worried. You know, you, there, there, there's a, you know, certainly Joe Biden is still the front runner. He's up in every poll, but it's certainly not his nomination to lose. There are other candidates who are, or who are making strong showings, who have plenty of opportunities to wrestle it away from him. Uh, and we will then see, however that plays out, that binary choice at the end of the day between Trump uh, and that Democratic candidate. And we know all this was Donald Trump ran a very fierce and effective campaign in 2016. I think there's every reason to think that he will again. Will a Democrat be this time more up for the challenge uh, than Hillary Clinton was last time? Jonathan Lemire is our guest on the Mike Lubica podcast. More of our conversation right after I tell you about our sponsor, Mac Weldon, who is giving listeners of this podcast 20% off your first order when entering the promo code. This is very complicated. Lupica at MacWeldon.com. I just got done shopping there at MacWeldon.com, and they really make shopping for shirts, socks, polos, and underwear so easy. Tell me, how many times have you been in a department store looking at aisles and aisles of underwear? Well, let me tell you this because I know that this is not the most invigorating shopping experience in the world. You just want to grab and go, but you can't because you're playing a game of roulette as to which ones are going to fit you when you get home. That's why they developed Mack Weldon. I love playing golf in their polos and their socks always keep my feet comfortable and dry and the underwear actually fits me perfectly. Welcome to a stress-free, easy shopping experience that will guarantee you the best fit and the most comfortable top drawer apparel you will ever own. All you have to do is simply use their size chart and you can design what you want. It's that easy. I mean, I did it and... And it just talk to Mrs. Lupica. If I can do it, anybody can. I can't stress to you how good Mack Weldon selections are. Custom engineered fabric, detailed stitching, even odor eliminating underwear and socks make Mack Weldon the obvious choice. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, keep them. Get a refund, no questions asked. Mack Weldon is going to give you 20% off your first order right now. Go to MacWeldon.com, enter the promo code Lupica. You know, I'm going to ask you a question that sounds like my friend, the Red Sox fan, asking me what I thought was going to happen in Game 7 in 2004. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. And I'll, I'll phrase it like this. Let's say the Biden... Okay, it's established that Biden is the front runner. Yep. If not him, who do you think is their, is their best option? Who do you think, out of the 10 that are going to be on the stage for the next debate, is the most likely to, you know, to, to, you know, like in the old Broadway story, step out of the chorus and become a star? 
Well, first of all, I think you're right in limiting it to 10. It's, it's hard to see a path, even though there are still 20 Democrats still running for president. It's hard to see a path for the, the 10 who didn't qualify for this next debate in September. You know, it's growing very late for any new candidate to jump in, uh, short of, say, perhaps Michelle Obama. Uh, you know, and spoiler, she's not going to. Uh, but in terms of someone who has that kind of name recognition and goodwill, um, you know, I, I think I, w- I would say this, you know, predictions are obviously a dangerous game, but the, the last few years have taught us have taught us that. Um, I mean, it's hard not to be impressed with Elizabeth Warren uh, and what she has done uh, over the last uh, few months. And I, I and for a couple of different reasons. One is she's by far the most policy heavy candidate uh, on the Democratic side. Two, she is someone who has become really quite good on the campaign trail. This was not a strength of hers for a while. Retail politics. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's it's surprising. It's maybe one of the most surprising narratives of this whole political season. Agreed. Uh, You know, when she ran for Senate uh, in my home state, Massachusetts, that was not considered a strength. And, you know, but she has really gotten better at it. She's gotten better at distilling complicated issues and telling them in relatable stories, her own personal story. And I feel like she's, she's kind of got it down where it's resonating with, with people. I mean, certainly she has work to do with minority voters in particular, uh, but she's someone who is drawing big crowds, you know, over 10,000 people in, in both Minnesota and Washington State in recent weeks. Uh, she is someone who, you know, seems to enjoy campaigning. And, 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 and maybe this side of, of Pete Buttigieg, who's, who's sort of a natural at this, she seems to be a really talented political athlete, which is something I wouldn't have seen necessarily a few months ago. And as a final point about Warren, uh, and, and let's just uh, caution this, I mean, she certainly has things she needs to answer. She needs to figure out, present how she's going to pay for some of her programs. I think her health care proposal is one that a lot of Americans will be leery about. But she is someone who, just in terms of pure politics, she already took a punch. The, the, the Native American uh, ancestry uh, gambits with the DNA test and, of course, the president calling her Pocahontas time and time again. Uh, that is something that, you know, when, when, when you get whacked by the president like this, most, peop- most times you get knocked down, you stay down. And she didn't. She got up. And I think a comeback story, the ability to, to, to take that punch and keep going is also really important in politics. So I think that would be a good sign for her as well. Will he pecker to death with Pocahontas? And 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 the 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 attendant question to that is, can she um, survive? Let's say she is the nominee. Can can she survive as a national uh, candidate if Wall Street hates her guts? That is a great question. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I can certainly tell you, uh, talking to people around the president, that we will be hearing Pocahontas again. Uh, even though that has sort of dropped as an issue in the Democratic primary field. And, and certainly, uh, you know, she is doing her best. She has apologized for what happened. She is trying to move forward. The president is not going to let that line of attack go. Uh, as far as Wall Street goes, I think that as much as her ideas really excite a lot of the populace, the voting populace who feel that Wall Street is is an unfair system, who want to see the American economy sort of fundamentally changed and, and made more equitable, they believe. Uh, she's going to run into some pretty strong opposition, opposition forces, too. And I, I mean, I can tell you just even anecdotally, uh, knowing some, some sort of high, some high finance types in New York, uh, you know, who are very attuned to this sort of stuff in politics. I mean, not, it's not just that she's doesn't want their money. I mean, she's not doing these big fundraisers. She's only doing small do- donation stuff. Uh, but there are there are some Wall Street characters who are certainly who are Democrats, or at least have voted Democrat consistently, who have said they won't vote for her. Uh, right. They would even be having they would hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump again. 
So I think that is something that we're going to see. You know, is that a challenge that she can uh, she can surmount? Do you think Bernie would have beat him? That that is that's a hard one. I mean, my instinct is still on that. I would say no. Um, I think that you know certainly there's some overlap among their base of support in a weird way, and and and, and there's some they hit some of the same core ideas. Uh, but I mean, Bernie Sanders is someone you know. Look, Hillary Clinton lost for a number of reasons, but one of the primary ones is that she failed to do what Barack Obama did, which was turn out minority voters, particularly in cities in those key battleground states, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Detroit, and so on. Bernie Sanders fared far worse with minorities during the primary season in 2016 with minority voters than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, It it is hard to know whether or not uh, they would turn out in a general election. I suspect not. And also I would just say, though, you know, and perhaps look, Bernie could. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but can't rule out Bernie being the nominee this time around. But whether it is Bernie or let's say it's Elizabeth Warren, you're going to see yes word socialist being yeah. trotted out time and time again from the president and from Republicans, believing that is something that the most of this country doesn't want yet, and they'll use it as a scare tactic. You know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, I'll ask you another question about 2016. I got a few minutes left. I've kept Jonathan too long on his vacation. All right. <sighs> Would Hillary Clinton be? Would would she be president? Hillary Clinton, if she if she'd never had a private server? Oh, uh, I think there's a decent chance. Yes, I mean I think that that was that that set a narrative and it set it early. And, yep. And, and it, yep. It, 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 like like low energy Jeb, like low energy yep. Jeb. Yep. And it was and she and her campaign did not do a good job uh, explaining it away. She refused to answer questions on it for a long time. It was sort of this drip 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 in terms of revelations that kept the story alive. And certainly Donald Trump and Fox News uh, and other conservative places and, and people really sunk their teeth into it. And it helped def- it helped re- also just help reinforce a belief that some, fairly or not, had about Hillary Clinton and her husband, the Clintons, that they were secretive, that they were getting away with things. Uh, and that that was just sort of a, a physical manifestation of that, the idea of the server that, that, that sort of reinforced what they already what they already thought. And certainly, look, uh, many, many graduate school seminars, I'm sure, are taught on whether the media covered uh, everything about the 2015-2016 campaign fairly. But just in terms of the politics of the moment, the Clintons didn't handle that well. And if there, were, if there wasn't a server, uh, we may have been staring at a different outcome going forward. But certainly her campaign made a number of other mistakes along the way as well. You know, it's funny. I, I was in his presence, Bill Clinton's presence, uh, last uh, the other weekend. Uh, he he umped a, a charity softball game that Walter Isaacson and uh, the artist writers game out here in Eastern Long Island. And Jonathan, there's still an amazing. Uh, you see it. There's amazing magic about this guy when he's out in public. And I was thinking that it wouldn't have mattered how much advice he gave to his wife. She was never going to be him. As a politician. And one of the things that, that you know, we haven't talked about today, but it, 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 you talk about the inside straight. Here's, here's other things that helped Trump. She never had a compelling reason for people to make her the president of the United States other than it's my turn. All right. That's one. And, and there was one thing that I was writing at the time. There was one nagging doubt that, that I had about her. Not only was she a bad candidate then, she's always been a bad candidate. Jonathan, the only two people she beat to become a United States senator from the state of New York were John Spencer and Rick Lazio. We could have beaten them. And yeah, like so she, she and then when when it was really supposed to be her time, 
She loses to a kid with a funny name from Illinois and, and who went up against this thing, the Clinton machine, and, 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 and Obama kicked her ass. Yeah. No question. She she is, you know, she was viewed as an effective senator. She was viewed as an effective secretary of state. Uh, she has certainly done a lot of good and it should be applauded for her life in public service. But she's not has never been a great candidate. You're precisely right. Uh, you know, she got a couple of cream puffs to beat in New York. Uh, she didn't uh, win in 2008. And certainly she fell short. Uh, on the biggest stage possible in, in, in 2016. And, and part of that is, you're right, she doesn't have possess the, the sort of natural charisma, that political instinct that her, that her husband does, who, you know, you know was you know, in, in sort of limited doses, but, a, but a, a, a key surrogate for her last time around, and a major behind-the-scenes player and strategist. And he saw the writing on the wall in those last few weeks. And well-reported. He was pushing the campaign to spend more time in the Midwest he felt that there were there were signs of slippage there. Uh, they just didn't do it. But it is also as a sideline, you know. Let's 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 be clear here that you know he is arguably still the most talented political animal on the Democratic side, pure politics. But I don't know that we see him this time around, uh, especially in, in the in the wake of the Me Too movement. I you know he is he has largely disappeared from the public scene, and I think that beyond perhaps running some fundraisers for whoever the Democratic candidate might be, or more likely perhaps the party. Uh, I don't think Bill Clinton is going to be a very visible presence uh, during the 2020 campaign. And a reminder that today's episode of the Mike Lubica podcast with Jonathan Lemir is being sponsored by Geico. Everybody's got a to-do list. Drop off the dry cleaning, pick up some milk. Here's an idea. Let's add save hundreds of dollars on car insurance. And the good thing is you don't have to drop off or pick up anything. All you have to do is go to Geico.com and in 15 minutes, you could be saving 15% or more on car insurance. Extra money in your pocket? It just may be the most rewarding to do you do today. Here's my last two questions for my friend, Jonathan Lemire. And again, you, you must read his work. You must watch him on Morning Joe because he just makes way too much sense about this stuff. One, how do you get along with Trump? That's question number one. All right. Well, we have a bit of a backstory, as I said. Uh, you know, we, we did know each other a little bit in New York. Um, I have, I have let, let's, let's put it this way. Um, I have asked him some tough questions over the years. Yes, you have. He is, yes, you he have. Not particularly appreciated, and uh, you know, he during a uh, campaign stop in late 2016, uh, in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape, it was actually just about a week later, uh, and after the tape dropped, he largely was sticking to the big rallies. So there was no chance for reporters who were following him around to shout any sort of questions. But about, but about a week later, in I believe we were in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, he finally did have a small event. It was like a business roundtable. And at the end, you know, as the, the event was coming to a close, there's that moment where you know, everyone's seen the video footage where you hear reporters shouting questions. And I, I did. And I, I asked him if he'd ever uh, kissed or touched a woman without their consent. Um, I got about halfway through that. Uh, the little crowd turned on me and booed me. The Secret Service <laughs> kind of hustled us from the room. And yeah. as I was being pulled out, I heard Trump turn to the crowd and go, what a sleazebag. So the president of the United, now president of the United States called me a sleazebag. Uh, I certainly know from uh, reporting, and I've talked to aides and my colleagues at other outlets, including the Washington Post, even wrote about this, uh, that last uh, summer after the Helsinki summit with Vladimir Putin of Russia, uh, I asked him a couple of questions there that, uh, in front of the world stage that he did not care for, uh, particularly whether or not he believed the U.S. intelligence agency's assessment of the 2016 election interference over Vladimir Putin's, and he did not pick, in his answer, the United States. Uh, and he vehemently complained to his staff afterwards 
uh, you know, why, why was I given that question? Why couldn't have a, a reporter who asked something easier uh, be called upon? Um, I will also say, though, that it, he has also, in other moments, been uh, perfectly gracious and professional uh, to me. I have asked him a number of questions, uh, one and other gaggles, press gaggles that he has been uh, fine with. We had an Oval Office AP, myself and two of my colleagues, had an Oval Office interview with him not too long ago, and he certainly was a professional there, too. Uh, you know, he, he enjoys the game with the media, is, 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 is a final point on this. He, he vehemently complains about us uh, in person and on Twitter, certainly. Uh, but at the same time, there's never been a president more anxious to find out what his media coverage is and to try to court good coverage. Uh, you know, he, he knows we're doing uh, our job. He likes to play the game. Uh, sometimes I would say, and certainly the White House Correspondents Association would agree that his rhetoric has become dangerous. And we, I think we, we fear uh, that something could happen to a reporter. Uh, perhaps someone would be incited by the president's words uh, to turn to violence against the press. Um, but yes, I would say he and I have an up and down relationship. All right, here's my last question uh, for Jonathan Lemire. And you just you can't have more fun talking about politics than than I've had talking. I, not because of anything I did. He did. He just you know I just try to hang around with people smarter than me. Last question is being on the inside, having the job you always dreamed about having as a kid. Are, are you filled more with optimism or despair? Not just about the state of of the business right now, but 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 the culture of the United States, which I believe is much meaner than it was in the nineteen sixties. I, I I believe this is the most uncivil time in this country since the the Civil War. Um, do, I, I guess this is a highfalutin way to ask if 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 you still feel like you can make a difference. I certainly think this the country is probably at least for, 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 you know, for the most time is as polarized and as divided as it has been in decades, if not generations. And I think we see that every day and everything is, everything is political now. And some of that is the Trump effect. Uh, but I think some of it predates him uh, in the 1990s. That I feel like a lot. Steve Kornacki, our friend and uh, MSNBC colleague, uh, wrote a great book about the red and the blue. It was titled about how you know the country became more and more partisan and divided starting in the 90s. And and Trump basically threw a match uh, on that gasoline. Uh, and and as we we see it day in and day out now. Um, so I think that is that is a concern. And one wonders when this moment passes, whether that's uh, in a year and a half or five and a half years, you know, what happens next? You know, who, who, who's our next president, whether that's in 2021 or 2025, you know, I don't think we should expect whoever that president is. We shouldn't expect Donald Trump to lead the stage, but it's more than just, than just Trump the person. It's what, has he unearthed something here? Has he, has he, has he given license to something um, that is, that is, that is ugly uh, and that is, is going to, we're going to feel for a long time. So I think that's a concern. I also think, though, that there are there are still this is still you know an extraordinary country with extraordinary people who every day, many most of them well out of the headlines, uh, do incredible things uh, to help their fellow person and their family, and that's something that we should always, you know, cherish. Uh, and I think in terms of just the terms of the, our role in the press, I think it's never been more important. Uh, our job is to shine a, a spotlight, and I certainly take that very seriously with what I do for the Associated Press and, and with MSNBC. And, you know, our job in an era of so much misinformation and disinformation an era where you know our 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 leaders our public officials have have got americans questioning what truth is uh you know it's it's our job as best we can to to, to stick to the facts to, to to explain 
as best we can to provide the right context, to provide the right background, as to, and to explain why this matters. And this is a moment right now uh, that really matters. And it is the greatest election season campaign, election season cliche that suggests, well, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Well, a pretty good argument can be made that this next one is. And I think that no matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, no matter whether you're for this president or against him, and I think that you know we as the press should do our, our, our very best to educate the voters as to what's happening and what's coming. And, and, and certainly, you'd like to think that, this, that America, our great country, will pay attention uh, and, and make whatever they think the right decision is. Five out in the wild card, 28 <clears throat> left. Tampa Bay between your team in Oakland and in Cleveland. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive, Jonathan. I dare to dream. <laughs> Jonathan Lemire, thank you so much for doing this on your vacation. I I will promise not to bother you too often, but but I'm going to have to circle back uh, and and put you in what we like to think of here as the is the regular rotation because talking to people like you is the fun of doing podcasts like this. So thank you, my friend. My pleasure. This was great fun. I'd be uh, happy to do it again. Go Sox. All right. Jonathan Lemire on the Mike Lubica podcast. Again, you can't have more fun talking about politics. Uh, go to Spotify. Go to Stitcher. There's a reason why we're doing this thing twice a week now. Our, our numbers continue to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment if you liked us, if you didn't like us. Have a great Labor Day weekend. I'll talk to you next week, everybody. The Mike Lupica Podcast is produced and distributed by Compass Media Networks in conjunction with Hiltzik Creative. For iPhone users, go to the podcast app and search the Mike Lupica Podcast. Click on the Mike Lupica Podcast icon and subscribe. For non-iPhone users, you can listen on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast platform. 